0: Hello, everybody. I'm Mark Chirino. And I am Michael Von Cannon. And we are so excited at One True Podcast to announce the formation of One True Book Club. Yeah. In order to walk in Hemingway's footsteps in Paris, we are going to read books, mini books uh, that are on Hemingway's uh, Lending Library card at Shakespeare and Company. That's right. And we are going to start with The Torrents of Spring by Ivan Turgenev. We're going to use the Constance Garnett edition, and we're going to get a better sense of Hemingway as a young reader and a young writer. And we want all of our wonderful listeners to join us. These book club episodes are going to be on Patreon starting in 2022. But for now, we have the information about them on our website, which is www.onetruepod.com. We hope to see you all in January to talk about the first 25 chapters of Torrents of Spring. Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote... All you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So, finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. And sometimes, Michael and I are lucky to be joined by writers whose authentic and powerful sentences. We have admired to ask them their selections for Hemingway's One True Sentence and why. And then as Hemingway says, go on from there. So we are thrilled to welcome Sherman Alexie to One True Podcast. Sherman Alexie has earned the Penn Faulkner Award for his short story collection, The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight Fight in Heaven, and the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, for The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. He also wrote and co-produced Smoke Signals, which won both the Audience Award and the Filmmaker's Trophy at the 1998 Sundance Film Festival. Alexei's more recent works include Blasphemy, New and Selected Stories, and You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, a memoir. Sherman, Alexei, welcome to One True Podcast.
1: Oh, thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Well, we're glad to have you. So why don't we start with your one true sentence and why?
1: Uh, It's from The Short Happy Life of Francis McCumber, uh, my favorite Hemingway story. And the sentence is, we all take a beating every day, you know, one way or another. Out of context, just as a sentence, philosophically, it's true. Uh, It it rings so clearly to me uh, on a personal level. Uh, The way I grew up, Uh, you know, when you grow up in a a violent place, uh, emotionally, physically, spiritually, uh, you end up feeling that way. You're always flinching. And I felt like I've spent most of my life flinching. And then the cavalier way the sentence is spoken uh, that, you know, in the middle of it, uh, which is which is so true, you know, uh, but is also so dismissive. Uh, so weary uh, that one gets exhausted just by flinching. And then in the context of the story, it comes right after Wilson, the hunter uh, talks about that. He beats his workers. He beats the natives uh, instead of finding them because of of the money. Uh, So he, he beats them to punish them. So, this sentence immediately follows that. It's such a justification for his behavior and so cavalier about the people who work for him. It reels something about his brand of masculinity, uh, his, his arrogance, his, his flouting of the rules and the laws, uh, his, his mercenary status, uh, which, you know, in this story, it's amazing. He, he's a hunter. He's this powerful, physical hunter, killer white man but he ends up, I think, being the fragile one. And, and I think this story, this sentence really points out his, it's not fatalism per se. It's more like just he's given up on any hope in the world. This is just what it is.
0: That's interesting that you say that because, out, again, out of context, one wouldn't be sure whether this sentence is a uh, reassuring or if it is fatalistic, uh, if, you're, if you're saying doom, if you say, well, we all take a beating, that might be something that could actually give somebody some sort of sustenance, but it could also be something that is immensely discouraging, right? And I guess it's all in the way of, in the way of how you take it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a shrug. Uh, Cause I mean, in the story, Wilson sleeps with McCumber's wife. You know, uh, she leaves the tent in the middle of the night to go sleep with Wilson, and McCumber knows this. I mean, talk about getting a beating. There's all yeah. sorts of beatings in the story, and perhaps the worst one is the 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 uh, cruel adultery. Uh, I mean, adultery is always cruel, but but the particular nature of this incident is is, is uh, you know it, it's it's breathtaking, and for Wilson to treat it as such. And it's something that Wilson always does. Uh one of the details, one of the details in the story that really oh cuts is he carries a double cot. Uh I didn't even know there was such a thing as a double cot. You know, I hadn't read the story in a while, and I read it, and when I first read it back as an undergraduate, I did not camp. <laughs> I was not a camper. So now after years of having a Boy Scout son, uh you Read that story and you're like double caught, oh my God, so it made me think how many other wives were inv- as has Wilson slept with
0: when he says at the end of this sentence that you read one way or another, uh, are you suggesting that different uh, let's say the different characters and the different groups in this story have a different definition of what a beating is and what punishment is, what humiliation is.
1: Yeah, well, you have the humiliation of McCumber, of course, who cowardly ran from a wounded line. You have the uh, uh, beating that his wife takes because she's married to this weak man. I mean, she gets the double uh, wounding, the double beating, because she's married to a weak man, and she's held hostage to the marriage by money. And then on the other side of it, suddenly she's married to a brave, courageous man. Yes. So that immediate flip within moments completely uh undermines her life's philosophies, undermines her marriage, undermines her confidence. And then you talk about Wilson, who is so dead in the soul, I think, where everything is a hunt. Uh so he's taking this personal beating and uh and then you got the natives in the story, the African workers who take physical beatings, but also in order to live to survive, they have to be on these hunts, which You know, in their traditions would be something they'd be doing anyway for their families, for their tribes, for their villages, for their communities. But now they're being paid to do it. And in order to do it, they have to take Wilson's abuse. So colonialism, you know, had robbed them of everything they knew, had corrupted it, had turned their communal life into something capitalistic. And in order to keep the job, they had to withstand the beatings. So there's physical, there's marital, there there's philosophical, there's existential, all of that, and it's all the same. Uh, there's no quality judgment in the story. Uh, there's no saying this is worse. This pain is worse than any other. Uh, and one thing about pain, people always measure people's pain. You know, when it comes to brown folks and black folks, there's always the joke about the oppression Olympics. Or that one group feels more or less pain based on race and class. But as individuals, we all have containers to where, to, where, to how much pain we can handle. And uh, that has nothing to do with your circumstances. That's something so innate with inside somebody, so based on interpersonal stuff that the size of the container varies. There can be a person, I'd like to think my container is huge because of how I grew up. Uh, but the same thing could be said, there could be a rich white guy out there who's been so damaged, who is so built to feel everything, that their container is much smaller. So something that I wouldn't consider painful can really wreck them.
0: Sherman, you. I think you talk about something similar in your poem, Survivor Man. Oh, it actually reads like a corollary of the one true sentence that you just chose. Some people want to live more than others do, some can withstand any horror, while others will easily surrender to thirst, hunger, and extremes of weather. Were you contemplating kind of the same philosophy?
1: Wow. Uh, you know, I haven't thought about that poem in a long time, I published it a decade ago. Or more. and it really does ring true. Uh, I mean because I got that from there's that TV series called Survivor Man, and it's part of a genre in reality television these these true stories about people who've survived extreme, extreme circumstances. And that poem is based on my memory of an episode which I cannot find, but my memory of an episode where one man carried his friend through the Utah desert. Uh, to safety, and it was in a marathon of carrying a man on his back, his friend, and how much he wanted to live, but more than that, how much more he wanted to save his friend. So, uh, but could I have done that walk? I don't think so. Uh, and and I, you watch these shows, and sometimes I think I could have survived that, and sometimes I think no, I couldn't have. And and I'm sure there's a kind of person who thinks they can survive anything uh, who's never been tested, who's never been tested and they think they can. So you
0: end that poem by saying, yeah, if you think you if you think you could, you're you're probably wrong. Are you are you kind of winking at the reader or are you are you saying are you giving a kind of a more serious contemplation about human Capacities.
1: I think I'm mocking the reader. In some way, <laughs> yes, <laughs> our our arrogance as human beings, but that means I'm mocking myself as sure, well. Sure, sure. I think well, human capacities are different. Uh, I know there's a lot of talk now about the meritocracy and 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 how uh, some people have advantages, others don't, and that's all true. But still at the very heart of us, there's, there's people who want to live more. There's people who will do more to survive, good or bad. Uh, there are people who are just more able to withstand external circumstances. And I think maybe that's the ultimate measure, right? I mean, there's always that joke of who would you want beside you during the apocalypse? And I always make the joke that, uh, well, you wouldn't want me. I'm a writer. Uh, I have no real life skills. I I type fast. That's all I have.
0: (laughs) That's your skill. That's what you're bringing to the table.
1: Yeah. all, all Uh, All I can hope is that, well, see that works out for me being a performer and being a comedian is that maybe I'm entertaining enough to earn a couple salmon now and again around the campfire.
0: Stay tuned for this word. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I read it cover to cover every time we see it. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org journals. So when we were talking about Hemingway's One True Sentence from Short Happy Life of Francis McComer, uh, does that, and in, in, now that we've also talked about your, your poetry, does the one true sentence uh, technique or approach to composition, does that have any overlap to your own writing process?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I know that one of the cliches in critical thinking about stories and novels about prose is the sentence. Uh, but I mean that's I, I agree with it that you could write a great prose sentence and and of course you, there there's many, many examples, I mean, endless uh, and but in poetry, there's the one line uh, and in most poems, you're talking you know one page. you're talking less than thirty lines. so the weight of each line matters more. I mean, the the importance of one line in a poem can determine the course of the entire poem itself. Where with a novel or even a short story, each sentence has less weight, Uh, especially in a novel. You know, you can read a great novel, an incredible novel, uh, and find bad sentences, even in the best of writers. I mean, I I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but uh, I can guarantee you Hemingway wrote bad sentences. Uh, and publish them. And there's also filler. I shouldn't say filler. There's also building blocks, sentences where, you know, uh, he grabbed a cup of coffee. Uh, Yeah, you need that detail, but that's not exactly poetry. And so, yes, when one of these sentences does arrive in prose, and you couldn't put, we all take a beating every day, you know, uh, in a poem, you wouldn't You'd go right over that, I think. You wouldn't hang on to it, but in the context of this story, yeah, it's a, it's 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 one of the themes. It's the theme.
0: Let me suggest one other thing, and and see if this can also be true. Can there be a novel, even ones with thousands of sentences in it, that the novel opens up? from one sentence or e- even in your, where you, you came up with a sentence in your mind and it be the novel sort of sort of evolved from that one pro sentence that was like in granite.
1: Uh, yeah. You didn't have that. No. You never had
0: that experience. Oh no,
1: I've completely had it. Uh, I was laughing because sometimes <laughs> the first sentence is so good. You don't need the novel, even though That's you right. do, uh, you know, we lived in the best of times we lived in the worst of times yep, okay, next novel. Uh, That that sentence, the beginning of a novel can be so profound, so awe-inspiring and so inclusive of everything that it just stops you short. And then you're like, oh my God, I have to keep going. Uh, But I would also argue there's the end line. Often with my novels and sometimes with my short stories, I have the end line. I have the finish line. I have the last sentence ready to go. And then I write toward it
0: can there also be uh, the as you're coming up with the motiva- the inspiration or the idea for a novel it's the sentence that you know as a writer is the one true sentence and it's even if it's tucked in the middle of chapter 26 and the reader it's not bookending the novel or front or back that that to you is the black box of the novel
1: well, wow, it's, it's, it, this is a great interview, because it's making me think of, of process of things I've written or ideas. And for Reservation Blues, my novel of so many years ago now, it's 26 years ago, I had one line in my head. Uh, and it was from a conversation I had with another student in the writing class. And he was a very religious person who was very sure about his ideas. And he was asking me what I think of God. And I said, God could be an armadillo, I don't know, <laughs> and I carried that sentence around for a couple of years and then yeah. uh and I knew I needed it, but I didn't know why or how and then when I was writing Reservation Blues, I realized in the middle of a theological monologue by one of the characters that God could be an armadillo. I don't know,
0: so where does it appear in the novel
1: sequentially uh, uh, uh in the middle
0: in the middle, but that was the first sentence literally that you wrote for that, for that novel.
1: Yes. It, it was hover written in my head. It was hovering there. I knew, I knew it would be in there.
0: Is there also as you're reading, because you are doing the audiobooks for your, for your work, that maybe there's a sentence that you thought was, he went to get a cup of coffee and wasn't such a big deal when you were writing it. But when you hear yourself read it out loud, it just, it has a new sense of power.
1: Another great question. Wow. Uh Well, I think there's a problem with that for me because I I am an actor. So, when I'm reading a story, even my own, I can find the emotion in what is otherwise an ordinary line, but I don't know if the reader would find it in the same way. Interesting. So, if I if I think about I mean, just I can't think of anything in particular, but let's say there's a The, we'll go with McCumber here again. The end of a marriage is happening in a story I wrote. And, uh, let's say the, 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 the spouse, the other spouse says, uh, I want a divorce. And then I'd probably put a pause in there. She said, I want a divorce. And he grabbed a cup of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I think in performance, the silence can have the kind of power you wouldn't necessarily be able to translate on the page.
0: That's a great. That's a great example. That's not just a cup of coffee in that in that circumstance. Uh, you you when you were talking about Macomber, you were talking about the the natives and how sort of uh, fraught that uh, Hemingway's presentation is in that in that great story. As a voracious reader. Um I I do wonder what your given your background what your uh perception is of Hemingway's presentation of Native American characters uh in his let's say in, in Indian Camp or Doctor and Doctor's wife that he seemed to return to um frequently in in his work.
1: Well, I know certainly in this era people are looking back at these uh previous generations of writers, especially white men, and looking for reasons to cancel them, looking for reasons to not read them anymore. And I've seen plenty of instances, especially in light of the recent documentary where folks are using Hemingway's depictions of minorities to justify not reading him. And it's really easy for me to read his Indian characters as metaphors. Uh in his stories they're always the admired other uh the the primitive man the the broken man uh so i think for him in some sense the native characters are paragons of what man is supposed to be and look how they failed in in some sense i think hemingway has a very christian idea of natives that were fallen angels uh and so it, it's it's a brilliant stereotype and and necessary uh why would anybody expect any of the Hevingway's characters to have uh, liberal attitudes toward the other? It, it's a representation of the way his characters would think. And to write otherwise would be dishonest. It would be a lie. If you're thinking about some uh, white soldier or some white outdoorsman, you're not talking about a social psychologist. You're not talking yeah. uh, about some liberal guy out in the woods, out in the mountains. You're talking about a hardcore survivalist. You're talking about a man of his times or a woman of his times. And that's the way I read Hemingway, Uh, that, that, that Indians are strangers to him.
0: Have you read a white writer of Hemingway's time who depicted Native Americans with the kind of fullness and sensitivity that you attempt to, uh, project them?
1: Nobody's coming to mind right now. Uh, I don't think, I think very few non-native writers are doing it now, let alone then. We're always the admired other. Yeah. We're always, uh, the literary victim of somebody's romantic ideas about us. Uh, even now, uh, the idea that you know the, the valid and powerful protests against the pipelines, the the you know issue for fight for sovereignty, the fight it, it turns us into political figures, into leftist political ideals. When in fact we're far more complicated than that. Uh, for instance, you know Deb Holland gets celebrated, just picked as a Secretary of Interior, which is awesome, which is amazing for a Native woman, especially to be in that position. But there are other national-level Native politicians. Uh, There's Sharice Davis, another Native woman, but she's a moderate Democrat. And then there's two right-wing conservatives in the U.S. House of Representatives who are members of their tribes. Their names are escaping me right now. Uh, But they're Native. They're enrolled members of their tribes. But they look white. Uh Uh, They're mostly white and they're right-wing conservatives. So nobody thinks about them as being native because they don't fit the ideal of the liberal environmental activist. So uh, it still happens to us that we get treated as the other, uh, especially when people think they're being kind.
0: Sherman, Alexi, would you please reread your one true sentence?
1: (laughs) It's funny. I should have it memorized. I don't. (laughs) I want to be right. I don't want to be wrong because I've noticed that I rewrite it in my head. (laughs) We all take a beating every day, you know, one way or another.
0: Sherman, Alexi, thank you for joining us on One True Podcast. It was a privilege.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at One True Pod. That's the number One True Pod. Or email us at one true pod at gmail.com. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department of the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast.